All right, real treat this morning. Uh, this is one of, I mean, he is, he's, he may be like top two favorite, favorite, my favorite preachers. I mean, this cat can preach. I thank the Lord for Troy Stogsdell. Troy Stogsdell was with us in the early days of our start here at 40th and Walnut. Uh, it was called uh, KCBT Midtown. We called it Crosstown Missions uh, in those early days. And Troy was a part of that core team to help us get a toehold in Midtown. Whenever we switched to, you know, we worked really hard uh, holding a Bible study on Sunday night and got um, no disciples. And so we realized if we're going to make disciples in Kansas City, we need something on Sunday morning. And, and Troy was so busy with the ministry responsibility that he already had. He said, look, you know, whenever you move to Sunday morning, I'm going to have to transition out. You know, it'll be a transition. And I think that was the last time we saw him. And so this is part of that transition. Troy is back to help ease that transition of him not being able to continue with us here at MVT. Um, Troy is dear. He's a dear brother. Brothers and sisters, welcome Troy Stogsdale. Troy, come preach to us, brother. All right, now to be fair, when I had that conversation with Sam, um, I came back one more Sunday. So I'm pretty sure. So we have differing views on, on the, this ease out transition. Um, but um, the, the, as, you know, as embarrassed as I am to, to say it, that's a, that's a true story. So, you know, hey, it is what it is. Um, um, but I'm so happy. Listen, he invited me back. So something, something good happened. It is my great privilege uh, to be with you guys this morning. I love this church. I love you guys. I, I love your pastor. He means the world to me. Um, I, I've known him since 1992, so that kind of gives you an idea of how old I am. And out of high school, I came in the college and career class with Alan Shelby, and there was Sam, and, and um, he truly, I mean, I, I mean this, he, he taught me how to do ministry, and, and um, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't be standing here before you today if it wasn't for him. Um, I love him. Uh, some of the, my best friends, Kenny and Miller, and some, go to this church, and so um, it's, it's awesome. This, this is a cool thing. But if you have your Bibles uh, with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. It's a very popular passage of Scripture, one that many of you know, I'm sure, quite well, um, are very familiar with. It's, it's, it's one we, we reference a lot. And I'm not going to try to attempt to do anything special with this passage, because listen, this this passage of Scripture is special all by itself. Uh, but what I want to do for you this morning, all I'm going to try to do is I want to paint a picture uh, about this guy that we see in Isaiah 53 called the Man of Sorrows. Now, I've heard that a picture is worth a thousand words. And so if that's true, that's going to save you 10 minutes of me talking uh, this morning. So that's a, that's, a win. that's a win for you at least. But I was drawn to preach this passage for a couple of reasons. First of all, I know the teaching you guys get here, um, and it's as good as any church in the world, and I, and I mean that. I know, that's a, I know that's a nice thing to say, you know, from a guy visiting, uh, but I do mean it. There's nothing I could teach you this morning that you haven't heard or you don't have access to, to the teaching that you get at this church. You should be thankful for that. You're blessed uh, to be a part of a church like this. So my only goal today is to paint this picture as a, as a means of motivation. I want to try to challenge you. Uh, but then second, over the, I don't even know, the past year or so, maybe more than that, 
God has used um, one of my favorite hymns, I think it's currently my favorite hymn, to draw me back to this passage, Isaiah 53, over and over. Time and time again, God's brought me back to this. And that hymn uh, is titled, Hallelujah, What a Savior. So that, I mean, that gives you some insight into not only my age, but my history. I, I do love hymns. Um, but Hallelujah, What a Savior was written in 1875 by a guy named Philip Bliss. And the story of the writing of that hymn comes from his own personal reading of Isaiah chapter 53. And Bliss said that after reading and meditating on that chapter one day, he was just struck with the awesomeness of what Jesus Christ did for us. And he said, all I could think to say was hallelujah, what a savior. And he sat down and he, he wrote that hymn. And, and again, I, I, love, I love hymns. I love the stories behind them. And after reading that one day, I thought, man, maybe, maybe I should do the same thing. I've certainly read that passage before, but maybe I should look at it and meditate on it. And I did. And, and the reason why I'm preaching this message this morning is because when I did that, it changed me. I, I looked at it in a whole different light. I, I truly meditated upon it. And, it, and it, changed, it changed me. Because the truth is, our view of God, our view of what Jesus did for us, it impacts the way we live out our Christian life. The practical implications of living the Christian life are somewhat hinged upon how we view God and how we view what Christ did. And I believe the greater appreciation we have for God and for Christ's sacrifice, the greater devotion we'll have for him. We sang about that this morning. And I say that, again, because that statement was true of me. It's what meditating on this chapter did for me. And so maybe God will do a little bit of that uh, in you this morning as well. And if it does, then, then listen, my mission's accomplished. I, you know, I set low bars. Uh, uh, that's all the expectations I have. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's what I've learned. Just set low expectations, and then, you know, you have a better chance. Um, but to me, Isaiah chapter 53, it is one of the most incredible chapters in the Bible. Um, we're only going to have time. We're going to look at the first five verses very quickly. Um, so let's read them together, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. The Bible says, Isaiah chapter 53, starting at verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you so much. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your sacrifice, Lord. I pray that as it has made an impact on me, Lord, I pray that your word will make an impact on, on everybody listening this morning. Lord, I pray that you will use your word and, and you will speak to each and every one of us. I certainly have nothing to say to this group of people, but Lord, I know that you do. And so I pray that you'll do just that. I pray that everything that I say is true to your word. I pray it's honoring to you. Lord, I pray that you'll be glorified in it. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it's, it's hard to understand how anyone can read this great chapter. We only read the first five verses. But if you read the entire chapter and even the passage we read and not see Jesus in it. Now, there are some that, that believe 
that it doesn't refer to Jesus, that it, that it refers to the nation of Israel as the servant who's being described in this chapter. But, but make no mistake about it, this chapter makes up one of the greatest prophecies, speaking of what was at the time of the writing, the, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Doctrinally, this passage speaks specifically of the Jewish rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, but this passage also speaks to us about who our Savior is and what he did on our behalf. And we know it, but I want you to think about it differently this morning. You know, sometimes we compare Jesus to Superman or, or name your favorite superhero. But I want you to know none of those descriptions actually do him justice because he's no superhero he's way more than that he's completely indescribable I like the way David put it in Psalm 145 verse 3 he says great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable and yet Isaiah 53 tells us that this indescribable and unsearchable God a God who describes himself in Revelation 1.8 as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty. That God became a man of sorrows. And listen, that hymn, Hallelujah, what a Savior, it starts with this line, the very first line in that hymn, it says, Man of sorrows, what a name. And I just have to tell you, man, when, when, when I sing that hymn, when I meditate on that hymn, I can barely get past that first line. Man of sorrows, what a name. Because listen, that is an incredibly amazing name for the God of the universe. And it tells us a few things about our Savior. First of all, first of all it tells us that he was a man. It's how deep profound we're going today in this, in, this, in this message. The man of sorrows, that phrase tells us that he was a man, that God was a man. And obviously there's nothing profound in that statement other than the profoundness of that statement itself. And what I mean by that is me telling you that God was a man is nothing new. Nearly everyone, maybe everyone in here knew, knows that. We all know that Jesus Christ, the Word, the Son of God, second person of the Godhead, came to this earth as a man. That's not profound for me to say. But you know what is profound? Is the fact that Jesus Christ, the Word, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth as a man. That fact is amazing. He was a man, and yet according to Romans 9.5, he is over all and God blessed forever. I mean, this is what Paul calls the, the great mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. You see, he who is God and was in the beginning with God was made flesh and dwelt among us. So Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, the highest stooped to become the lowest. The greatest took his place among the least. 
Strange and needing all of our faith to grasp it, yet it is true that he who sat upon the well of Sychar and said, give me to drink, was none other than he who dug the channels of the ocean and poured into them the floods. We should never get over the fact that the man, Jesus Christ, is God and that the God, Jesus Christ, was man. Am I doing that? Is it me? All right, we're going to keep going. We got, we got limited time. Yeah, where's it at? All right, I'm going to keep going. You do what you need to do. I'm going to keep talking. All right, so the deity of Christ, this is what we're talking about. This is, this is one of the most important doctrinal facts that you can grasp. All right, so we all understand it, but I want you to just dwell on it. Are we, are we, what am I using? Keep using this. All right. Um, I want us to dwell on it that Jesus Christ, God, became man. And, and when I think about that, I think about things like, and, and, and this I'm sure wasn't him, but I think about things like how hard must it have been for the highest to stoop to become the lowest? Because Jesus Christ's manhood was just as real as yours and mine. It only differed in the absence of sin. Philippians 2, 7, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So God had to live amongst us in all of our fleshliness. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Listen to that. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, God became man. How incredible. But it does not, it, it doesn't only end there. Because this amazing phrase says that not only he was a man, but he was a man of sorrows. And you've got to understand that phrase because it does not say he was a sorrowful man, but a man of sorrows as if he was made up of sorrows. You know, we give men titles like this sometimes and we'll say, okay, he's a, he's a man of wealth or he's a man of stature. He's a man of integrity. And if you would have lived alongside Jesus, what do you think you would have called him? You know, maybe a man of holiness or a man of love, a man of peace. And of course, he was all those things, but the Bible calls him a man of sorrows. Lamentations 1.12 said, says, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. And this verse is dealing with, with Jerusalem's appeal uh, during her destruction. Jeremiah wrote, wrote this. But Jerusalem prefigures Christ. And the language prophetically points to the Lord Jesus Christ as a man of sorrows. We're good? All right. All right. And so this is... Jerusalem prefigures Christ and it points to Christ 
as a man of sorrows. And of course, what Jeremiah said, it happened exactly like he said it. When Jesus was on the cross, we read in Matthew 27, 39, and they that pass by, remember he said, is it nothing for you to pass by? And then in Matthew 27, 39, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. You see, it was nothing for them. All them that passed by. So let me ask you, is it nothing to you? Do you just pass by when you're brought into remembrance of Christ's suffering? Do you just pass it by when it's brought to your remembrance? I, I want you to allow yourself to feel it this morning and not to pass it by. The Bible calls Jesus a man of sorrows. And, and to me, this is, this is interesting. It's not that noteworthy of a fact, but it's interesting to me that there's no record in Scripture of, that Jesus ever laughed. Now, I believe he did laugh. I mean, especially if you read some of the interactions with him and his disciples, there's some pretty funny stuff in there. So I, I believe he did laugh. But there's no record of it. We do have record of him crying. As he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. And we should always remember that, that God subjected himself to grief on our behalf when he became a man. I mean, listen, just think about it. I'm sure he was dogged about his birth, you know, and his virgin mother. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure that, that, that people misunderstood him. I mean, his brothers misunderstood him, didn't believe him. He's called a wine-bibber and a glutton. He had no home to go to. Matthew 8, 20 says, And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. It came to the point to where he was, you know, essentially public enemy number one. In the time leading up to his crucifixion, the Pharisees offered a reward to anyone who would turn him in. He couldn't get his own disciples to stay awake to pray with him the night before his crucifixion. It's entirely true that he was rejected of men. In the words of the Apostle John, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But even as we sit here today, some 2,000 years later in 2020, he is still not received by most. And yet he still willingly died. Even for those he knew would reject him. And listen, that act is what makes him a man of sorrows. I would even say it makes him the man of sorrows. Because all men, all of us, all women, we all have a burden to bear. But there's no doubt that his burden was heaviest of all. As he bore the weight of all our sins on Calvary. He was the original innocent one who was punished for something someone else did. And in the midst of it, he didn't demand his own rights. He laid it all down. I mean, I think it's safe to say that no person listening to me, and myself included, we, none of us probably have ever sweat drops of blood. Or in the same bitterness of anguish, rightfully cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's never forsaken us. 
And again, he bore the weight of our sins. He sweat those drops of blood. He cried out to his father in that way as someone who was not only innocent, but sinless. Can you grasp the magnitude of that fact? You see, sin deserves punishment. But he didn't. He didn't deserve it. And I need you to think about it for a second. You and I, we were born with a sin nature. But Jesus was not. He did not inherit that from his father. And since he didn't have a sin nature, he was not in his element amidst sorrow. It's kind of like, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies when they showed up in Beverly Hills. They're out of place. You see, to a lifelong criminal, prison is his home and, and prison meals are what he's used to. But to an innocent man, prison is misery. And everything about it is strange and foreign. That's how it's supposed to be. Well, our Lord's pure nature had to be particularly sensitive to any contact with sin. Where us, listen, you know you, I know me. We, on the other hand, by the fall, we've lost much of that feeling. As unfortunate as it is, sin isn't foreign to us. And therefore, neither is sorrow, because they go hand in hand. But Jesus being perfect, like every sin pained him more than it would have any of us. And listen to this next, next statement. Every sin this world has ever committed was laid to his charge. And he was the man of sorrows. But it wasn't just the sin he had to deal with. He wasn't a man of sorrow. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows. Plural. He knew all kinds. The sufferings of the body and of the soul were known to him. The sorrows of the person who actively struggles with some addiction. The sorrows of the person who is abused and passively endures. The sorrows of the privileged he knew because he was the rightful king of Israel. The sorrows of the poor he knew for he had not where to lay his head. Sorrows physical, sorrows mental, sorrows spiritual, sorrows of all kinds and all degrees attacked him. And so side by side with his painful sensitiveness to, e to the evil of sin was his gracious tenderness toward the sorrow of others. Because he knew. And he knew because he loved. And that made him a willing sufferer. All the suffering and the sorrow that, I, that I've tried to illuminate so far, he took upon himself willingly. Isaiah 53, back there, look at verses 3 and 4 again. It says, He has despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. You see, all of our sins and all the grief and the sorrows that he carried on himself, they were not forced upon him. Jesus explained this in his parable in John 10. He let everyone know how willing he was. In John 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. And then down to verse 15, as the father knoweth me, even so know I the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. He willingly suffered. He willingly laid down his life. The devil didn't take him from it, take it from him. He laid it down 
He didn't have to know grief, but he did. And, 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 and I, ha- I just hope you understand that he, he did not, he would not, he, he didn't have to. But out of his love for us, he remained to the end, grief's acquaintance. And his willingness to suffer, again, was due to the depths of his love. And his love for the world, his love for you, his love for me. And, you know, if, if truth be told, at least I can speak for myself on this, I think, you know, none of us really bear pain that well. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't love it. Um, perhaps fewer of us still even can bear misrepresentation or slander against us. Uh, it hurts us to our core when we know something isn't true about us. And yet Christ, throughout his life, he bore these and other sufferings. Because of his love. And listen, because of that, we ought to love him back. As we think about how much he loved us, will you try this morning to get your soul saturated with this fact? And I ask that, knowing that for some reason, in some days, that's difficult for us. It's difficult for us to really, really allow that to impact us, what his love did for us. You know, folks sometimes wonder and they'll ask why the church grows so slowly. But let me be honest with you. When I think about the shallow consecration to Christ that there is in the church, I don't wonder that much. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but many of his disciples who profess to be altogether his are in truth only living for themselves. Because while Christ was willing to suffer all for us, we're not even willing to suffer little for him. And I think it's because we don't understand his love. That's what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us. It holds us together. Because we thus judge, if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That's what the love of Christ does. It allows you to not live for yourself. When you understand it, when you grasp it, when you own it. So Christ was a willing sufferer. And then through that suffering, he became a worthy substitute. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. This is another somber verse that points to many of the same things we've been talking about, except for those last seven words. So we hear more about his suffering, and then we hear, And with his stripes we are healed. What a great seven words those are. We are healed, and for those of us who accepted him in faith, we are healed because he was a substitute. And and if you look at Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, we can make it personal. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That means there needs to be a substitute. We need it. I mean, this, of course, is the very heart of the gospel, the good news that Jesus took our place. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to that judges righteously. And look at verse 24. Who his own self bare our sins and his own body on that, on that tree. That we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For you are as sheep gone astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. 
And as the worthy substitute, Jesus took our sins. And he paid the price for them. You see, sin is a disease that's inflicted all of us. It has afflicted the entire human race. And it spells out for us what we really are like. Because listen, most of us, you know, we, we know the truth, but we like to think of ourselves as decent people. You know, some of them, even good people. I mean, we're not perfect, but there's certainly people way worse than us. But listen, when we come to understand the substitutionary necessity of Jesus' death, then we can begin to grasp the, grasp the depths of the evil in our hearts and see that sin is a disease that has infiltrated our whole lives. So with that in mind, Isaiah 53.5 comes as the best of news. He was wounded for our transgressions. The bruising he felt was the chastisement that we deserved. But it was laid upon him. And the stripes that Jesus endured is for our healing. And of course, the stripes refer to the beatings of Jesus at the crucifixion. But I also believe they represent so much more than that because I want you to notice again the wording of 1 Peter 2.24. Says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. The Bible says he bear our own sins in his body. And by our sins being placed on him, as we ask him to be our substitute, we are healed. He paid for all of our sins. Each sin we commit was a stripe to his body. He took every sin in his own body. Can you imagine that? The sinless Son of God on the cross being beaten by sin after sin after sin after sin. And while that should trouble your soul, I hope it makes you incredibly thankful for the only worthy substitute that was and is available for salvation. Because with his stripes, we are healed. What a gift. And that's a gift that keeps on giving what a gift giver God is. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We have an amazing God who was willing to deliver himself up because a substitute had to be made and he was the only one who could do it. He was the only one worthy. And because he was a willing sufferer and, and the only worthy substitute, I have to just tell you this morning, that makes him a wonderful Savior. The man of sorrow sure makes a marvelous Savior. Listen, his worthiness and his willingness to suffer all for you should lead you to one and only one conclusion. And that is, he's wonderful. It's the Bible's conclusion of Jesus. In fact, the Bible says that he's so wonderful, it's one of his names. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Listen, there are countless things in this world that are called by names that do not belong to them. We give names and, and, and places adjectives like, you know, sports people or celebrities, and we'll call them stars, or we'll say, man, that was a wonderful performance. That was an amazing performance. Well, you should know that Christ is called wonderful simply because he is so. God the Father never gave his son a name that he did not deserve. There is no flattery here. It's just the simple name he deserves. See, I completely believe that Jesus Christ was the king of heaven. 
And yet he was a poor, despised, persecuted, and slanderous man of sorrow. And while I believe that, I can't understand it. I love him for it. I desire to praise his name because of it. But I can't pretend to understand it. All I can do is say he's wonderful. Hallelujah. What a savior. And I'll venture to say that all the wonders you have ever seen pale in comparison to the wonderfulness of Christ. Man, I hope you see it that way. And his wonderfulness shined no brighter than when he was suffering his darkest day. The fact that he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, was wounded for our transgressions, and endured stripes for our healing. So that's what makes him wonderful. Who else would be willing to do this? It's not the only thing that makes him wonderful, but it certainly does. Who else would be willing to do that? But here's what you have to understand. At the point he secured our salvation through his death, he was no longer a man of sorrows. Because everything we've described about him today involved his life and, and, and the time spent on the cross. You and I know he's no longer on the cross. John 19.30 says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And that phrase, it is finished, is one we, we rightfully reference a lot. It's, it's found, and this is the only time it's found in the Bible. And it's, it's, it's an accounting term that means paid in full. And when Jesus uttered those words, he was declaring the debt owed to his father was wiped away completely and forever for those that would put their place, place, place their faith in him. It was paid in full. And that's such an important saying by Jesus. But let me submit to you this morning that it has an even deep, deeper meaning than that. It certainly means what I described, but it also means, means that he was finished being the man of sorrows. And I'm not saying that we don't treat him in a way that makes him sorrowful. Because in one sense, he still gets spit upon and reviled and passed by every day. But what I mean by that is there will never again come a time that he has to endure the physical pain and torment that he faced at his first coming. You see, the fact that he is still rejected of men is actually a sign of his grace. Because we live in the age of grace where the last sins have not been judged. We live in a time of divine forbearance. That means God is holding back his wrath. And the punishment for sin that could be handed out immediately is often delayed. And so people will ask all the time, man, why did God allow that? Or how could a loving God let that go on? And the answer that the Bible screams out is he won't. He ultimately will not because when his kingdom comes, his will is done. He will defeat the enemy. He will pour out his wrath upon those who reject his free grace offering today. And in his thousand-year millennial reign, he will rule with a rod of iron. And let me tell you, that day ain't far away. That's why it's so important for you to recognize his sufferings as a substitute for you today. Because that's really what this all boils down to. I mean, you know, why would I try to paint the picture that I've tried to paint this morning? Why would I take the time to describe his suffering like I did? It's because I want to motivate you. If you're a Christian listening to me this morning, I want to motivate you to devote yourself to him more than you ever have before. What great love he showed you. I want to encourage you to give your life over to him like you never have before. He loved you to the point of death. Why don't you return the favor? And listen, his suffering as a substitute, this is what sets Jesus apart from Muhammad, from Buddha, from Joseph Smith, whoever. 
Name your prophet. Nowhere else can you find a God in pursuit of people. He loves us like no one else can. And you see it all throughout the Bible, like the Old Testament. He loves his people over and over throughout their foolish, destructive rebellion. All the way to the point that at the end of the Old Testament, his people had veered so far off course that God becomes silent. There are no more prophets. It looks like he's abandoned them and accepted their choice to not have him. But that wasn't the case. Because in the deepest and most incredible expression of his love, he sent his own son to suffer and die as a substitute for the entire human race. What kind of pursuer is that? What kind of love is that? It's a love of an indescribable and wonderful Savior. Doesn't it make you want to love him back? Doesn't it make you want to reciprocate a life of suffering for him? What is more important than giving your life to him? Than being a part of his purpose for you? And if you're not a Christian, if you've never accepted the substitute uh, for your sins, as a payment for your sins, then I want to motivate and persuade you to make him your personal savior today. Romans 3.22 says, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. You see, he's a wonderful savior to all, but is he a wonderful savior to you? Because his offer of salvation is unto all, but is avail it's available to everyone, but it's only upon all them that believe. So there's no such thing as limited atonement, but there is limited salvation. And that salvation is limited by you. Revelation 22, 17 says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Salvation is only limited by your willingness to take it. So if you've never done it, can I beg you? Take of the water of life and drink it freely this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and what a wonderful Savior he is. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, speak to them today. And do the, the work that your Holy Spirit can do to convince and convict them of their need for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.